Hi, my name is Hero Bean Stevenson, and you're listening to the All of Us podcast, where we explore and embrace mental health through the simple act of honest conversation. Before we get into it, I'd like to mention that in sharing my personal experiences and insights, I do not claim to be an authority or expert on any of the issues that might come up in the discussion you're about to hear. These conversations include in-depth discussion around various mental health-related topics, the details of which may be triggering to some. So please take care while listening. Finally, thank you so much for joining us, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Before we begin, I'd also like to take a moment to thank and talk about BetterHelp, our first sponsor for the podcast. To be honest, I can't remember the first time that I went to therapy. What I do know is that since I was a little girl, it has been a consistent presence in my life, something that through my worst and best moments, I've been able to count on to provide me with support, guidance, and the feeling of being heard and understood. It's been an absolutely invaluable resource for me, and one that I believe everyone deserves access to, which is why I'm so excited to be partnering with BetterHelp as the very first official sponsor of this podcast. BetterHelp is an online resource that makes professional counseling accessible, affordable, and convenient so that anyone struggling with facing life's many obstacles or anyone who simply needs a space to be heard can get the support that they deserve anytime, anywhere. BetterHelp offers access to licensed, trained, experienced, and accredited psychologists, marriage and family therapists, clinical social workers, and board-licensed professional counselors so that you can use BetterHelp with the comfort of knowing that your mental health is in highly vetted and trustworthy hands. Visit www.betterhelp.com slash allofus to receive 10% off your first month of counseling. Hello, it's me. It's Monday, January 24th, and today is episode 34 of the All of Us podcast, and we have Will See You returning for the second week. If you haven't listened to the first part of our conversation, please go back to last week's episode and listen to that. Um, You'll get a much better sense of Will's story and how he came to do the work that he does. Um, So yeah, if you feel like it, I very much urge you to go back to last week's and listen to that if you haven't already. But in today's installment, we delve much deeper into his work with psychedelics and maps, and then we go into a deeper conversation that was honestly one of the best that I've had both on and off the podcast. I felt just so honored to be um, talking with him in such an honest and vulnerable way. It really was an amazing experience and we discuss inner narratives and self-perceptions rooted in childhood trauma and it was just amazing. I really can't tell you enough how excited um, I am for you guys to hear this conversation if you make it that far into the podcast. It's definitely towards the end but it's just it's such a special conversation and um, yeah really really revealing and profound and something that I felt very lucky to be a part of. Um, The experiences that we do talk about are pretty heavy, so if you're in a sensitive place, just please be aware and take care of yourself while listening. And um, then further along, we talk about uh, coping mechanisms and comparison and things that we all deal with these days. 
As well, just a little bit of a heads up, if you are listening to this episode with any kind of time constraint, or if you prefer not to hear 20 minutes of discussion about horses, I would skip to minute 19 or 20. Um, yeah, we when we started recording, um, Will told me that he had just had a really special experience at a horseback riding lesson. And then naturally, that is what we talked about for a good amount of time, um, which I very much enjoyed and was very special and and great. But if you prefer not to hear 20 minutes of conversation around horses, then skip to minute 20. But, you know. It's great. I think the whole the whole episode is worth listening to, but just wanted to let you know. All right. Without further ado, here is the second installment of my conversation with the wonderful Will Siu. Hi. Hi. It's so nice to see you again. Yeah. Good to see you. And it's at home, much, at home this like familiar time. now. <laughs> I know. Isn't that the best? Yeah. It is so nice. I know. It's always funny. I think that. I'm definitely, I feel like I see a lot of humans as being pretty familiar. Um, yeah. Like when people, <laughs> when people appear on my screen for this, like I obviously have met a lot of people that I've never met before. And I think <laughs> that could be really awkward for a lot of people, but it, it tends to be pretty comfortable, but it's always the best when it's someone that you feel like you've already had yeah. a moment with. Yeah. yeah. How are absolutely. you today? Um. I'm having a particularly awesome day, actually. You are? Um, That's amazing. Yeah, I, I've been working with a hearth trainer for not that long, actually. Um, yeah, and I had a, we had a lesson today that was just like epic, epic, With, epic. with a horse um, trainer? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm, getting, I'm getting writing lessons right now, which is interesting because as, um, it's just, I don't know, just life, uh, I don't know. Just, I feel like, oh, one thing I always say to people is like, I feel like life is only getting more interesting. Like life only gets more complex, I think, further along our journey. So like, um, my only experience with horses up until like a year ago was actually a, a pretty negative one. I was in Costa Rica at some like um, national park or something. And I saw like, these horses, uh, the particular horse, and I went to go like touch it because I, I don't think I've ever even gotten that close to a horse in my adult life. And I touched it and I got scared all of a sudden. And, and like something in me told me to back up and it actually turned towards me and then bucked, but it missed me by like two inches. So like I, it, it's kind of been this trauma in my head. And then, but I've had this like always in the back of my mind this interest in horses I don't know how to explain it but then a little over a year ago um, I was working with a client I was the person's psychiatrist and therapist and the person also had a coach a, so a sober coach this is someone struggling with addiction um, so we ended up talking because you know practitioners often talk to each other when they're on the same team and then we were chatting and she mentioned at the end, she's like, oh yeah, and I live you know, up in the valley and I have horses. And she's like, you're welcome to come and you know, like, play with them sometime if you want. And like, it caught my attention, but I didn't like think to take her up on it. But then a, like a month later, I literally like, called her and I'm like, hey, you made this comment at the end of the last time we talked. I'm like, would you be up for that? And she's like, absolutely. So that started this like 
and I remember, it's a wild thinking to today. And sorry, we're, we're taking up time not with the podcast. No, this but, is uh, my favorite topic. You know, I ride horses every day almost. Really? Yeah, I'm a competitive Gosh. equestrian since I was oh, like, wow. yeah, since Beautiful. I've been I've been riding horses since I could walk basically. Okay, so, so like all this is like very beginner to you then, but like no, it's wonderful. So it's interesting because the first time I went to her house, I mean, they're just, I mean, obviously you know, but like there are these, I mean, they're massive beasts, especially to someone who hasn't like worked with them before. And like, I remember just being scared in the beginning. I'm like, if I touch it, will it buck? And she's like, no, she's like, those are like, she's like, those are horses that have been like abused. She's like the horse that bucked you probably was like one of those horses that just was forced all day and they were probably hit and stuff. She's like, these horses would never hurt you. She's like, just watch your feet. She's like, they're heavy. So they may step on your foot yeah. if you're not watching, but they don't, they wouldn't do it on purpose. So, but I remember it took me some time to even get used to that. And then um, her name's Christine, my friend. And she um, then last summer got like, she went to a training to do, cause she's been doing sober coaching um, and also works at one of those like fancy, like Malibu rehabs. Um, yeah. But she stopped working there just cause it got too intense for her. And she, she decided to get certified to become, to do equine therapy. Mm -hmm. And since we had become closer, she was like, Will, can I practice some of my equine therapy with you? And I'm like, sure. And I went over like thinking like, oh, okay, like I'm, I feel like I'm a pretty skilled therapist and healer. And it like blew me out of the water. Just like the, the way we worked with the horses. Like I won't go into it um, unless you want me to. Or we can talk about it another time. But I was like, whoa. Like I had projected all these things on the horses and yeah. which one I liked and which one I didn't like. And I really, like, I was like, holy shit, this is cool. Um, anyway. And then just to, to finish off. So then, yeah, a few months after that, I actually decided, I was like, I actually want to learn to ride. And so started working with her trainer. Um, and I just got lucky with both of them because they're very much like spiritually connected and, and they, you know, they, they don't believe in like, I guess most trainers and I guess most of the field is still about like pain is how you control a horse. And, and um, they're totally not into that, you know? Yeah. And, and, um, so I've been learning just from both of them, just how to really work. And like, so today in particular, why it was a big deal. So I've had a lot of uh, physical trauma myself um, from physical abuse for my dad. And then um, like some, uh, I was involved with gangs when I was in high school. And so there was a lot of threats against my life for, for like a chronic period. It was like a year and a half. Um, and so I've never really felt into my lower body. Like I've felt usually pretty numb. And when people are like, oh, meditate and ground and feel mm -hmm. your sit bones, like I never, that never made sense to me. I'm like, I don't really feel my lower body. So that is, you know, when I, I basically went into this thinking I'm going to learn to ride horses, but it's been this like, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly learning how to ride horses, but it's, it's been like reconnecting to my lower body. Like last time and this time is the most I've ever felt connected to my lower body, like with different exercises we did. Like now I know what sitting on my sit bones is actually like, and it's been this like, yeah, this like beautiful gift to learning just more about me. And I was also thinking today, I'm almost done. <laughs> I'm talking no, it's okay. This but, is great. Um, the other beautiful thing was like this, I was thinking today, this like learning about like healthy masculine and healthy feminine, especially in terms of pressure and the horse, because like 
you know, obviously, you know, it's like, like there's, it's, 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 a, it's like a conversation with pressure and, and, and this, this giving and taking. And it was like, like at times I watched myself hesitate as I would with people when I was like, well, I don't really want to pull on the reins. I'm like, like am I making it do something it doesn't want and this and yeah. that? And she was like, yeah. actually, she's like, you know, they're, they're, they're prey animals. So she's like, some of the horses, she's like, she's like, you can think of it. Like you're actually helping them feel safe. You're helping them have a direction. And it was, so it's been like all these little, like, again, that's like 5% of what it's been like, but it's been like, I don't know. I've like worked on these themes in therapy, but like just somehow, yeah, working with, with, yeah, these, these beautiful animals has been just a gift. So anyway, I'm, no, I'm yeah, high off of that from this morning. <laughs> it's totally incredible. Are you learning to ride Western or English? I don't know. <laughs> Does your saddle have a horn or is it flat? Like, is there something to hold on to? Like there's the, like a little round, round. It's not a horn. It's more like a little loop. Are you like working up towards jumping? No, no, no. I, I just, no, I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> I wonder um, if I can't really describe, I can't, the horn is like, Western is like cowboy riding. Are you learning to ride like, like with like a cowboy saddle or is it more sort of like a classic looking like what you would see? I in have like a England? sense probably we're doing the cowboy thing. I think it, like okay. I said, it doesn't have a horn. It has like a, it's, it's like, the saddle there and there's like a loop like that that I can hold. I think you're riding English. No, I think because yeah, they'll put like a little strap. It's called a pommel strap. The pommel is like Yeah, it looks more like a strap. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) I think you're learning to ride English. Yeah. I um I started riding pretty much before I could but like as soon as I started to walk, we had these miniature horses in our backyard, which are like not really rideable. Um, but I, st- my whole childhood was like running around barefoot with these little horses. And then I started riding, um, actually riding when I was, I think like five, I started taking lessons four or five. Whoa. And then when I was seven ish, I started competing and yeah. then all through middle school and high school, I was a Whoa. really competitive rider and like basically went to school like I skipped basically every Friday of high school because I was horse showing on the weekend. Um, And then when I went to college, I brought my one horse that I've had the longest. So horses, when you can, it's kind of like a car, you can like own one or lease one. And when you're competing a lot, like you have like multi, I was on like a, it's like the A circuit. It's like a very, the very competitive version of horse showing. And so I had these Mm -hmm. like multiple horses but I only owned one of them and I bought him when he was five. So like very young in horse terms, horse years. Yeah. Um, and when I went to college uh, or when I finished high school, all of my sort of lease horses, those leases lapsed, but I had this one that I owned. Um, and the deal was that I would be, cause riding is obviously a pretty expensive sport if you do it competitively. And the deal mm-hmm. was always that it would be supported until the end of high school. And then I would have to stop. And I had this one horse that I owned. Um, his name is Carter. And he was such a, like a therapy animal almost for like, it wasn't an, I couldn't let him go. Like there was no way on earth that I, I would like sell a kidney before I got rid of this horse. And um, luckily my parents understood. And so I took him with me when I went to school in New York, he stayed sort of Mm -hmm. on Long Island. And that was obviously, I think, as I've touched on a little bit, like the darkest time in my young adult life, it was horrible. And I went out and rode him every weekend and it was like, totally Mm. life-saving. And then when I came back here, I brought him back 
Um, and now I just actually got another horse. He arrived here less than a week ago. I'll have to send you a picture of him. He's beautiful. Yeah. Um, so he just got here, but Carter too. Yeah. A lot of the most healing moments of my life in terms of my, um, like mental health process that I've been aware of have been really anchored in my connection with horses. It's been so important. I also think that we kind of forget we like as humans, we have like a, at least most of us have like a historical, like biological connection to riding horses. Like a lot of our ancestors mm. rode horses. I think we're mm. like mm. for generations we've been connected to these animals. And so that's why I think a lot of people have really strong connections to horses, even though they've never ridden or maybe never even been around a horse. I think it's like a very deep sort of spiritual connection. Yeah that yeah. happens. But it's amazing. Yeah. With the, the equine therapy, I, um, when I went to high school, we were all sort of required to do, um, like community service in some way. We had to have a certain amount of hours as a lot of high schools have you do. Um, yeah. and I kind of immediately started with this, um, equine therapy program called ahead with horses. And I still am involved with them and, um, volunteer. Ooh. And it's, they, it's mostly with children who have down syndrome or on the autism spectrum, but they also work with uh, veterans who experience PTSD and it's, they don't work. They're mostly with, with children who have like kind of severe physical and mental disabilities, but there are a lot of other equine therapy programs around the U S that are really heavily focused on PTSD um, like veterans or like uh, survivors of abuse and, and all of that. Yeah. The horse, the horse therapy is the equine therapy is really, really amazing. Yeah. It was interesting because, like, maybe we'll end up just talking about this for a little while. You don't mind? So beautiful. Like, it's like I remember one time she also had um, like a healer come because one of her horses was was struggling, and like he was basically doing like what we would call like myofascial release on it, and I could just they. I mean somehow we started talking about souls and reincarnation, and I, I was like, do you think like? you know, horses have souls and reincarnate. Like, I was like, absolutely. He's, yeah. like, he's like, I don't normally talk about that with people, but he's like, absolutely. They, he's like, he, he thinks that they do. And um, yeah, and then when you were talking about this, like, connection to the horses, that's what I, like, what I really felt today. And it was different than rock climbing, because rock climbing is my other, like, well, not my other, because I feel like I, I can't call myself. Oh, like, no, we're in so much trouble, because I have, like, a crazy fascination with rock climbing. And I really? weirdly, I get, like... I get weird monomania around sports. There are certain Mm. sports that I like really, and I don't even have to participate, like with the rock climbing, I know like a weird amount of information about like boulderers and like alpinists and like rock, like I know a lot about it and different climbers for no other reason than like, I just, I think I love a sport (laughs) with a really strong culture. Like I also got really into like formula one racing in the last two years. And I like know a weird, a weirdly heavy amount of information about like the different drivers and the teams and the, like the different, like mechanics, like all the, I get really obsessive with that. But the rock climbing for me is like on a whole level. I was telling my friend Christine, because I, this was such a big day that I called her on the way home. Cause I was like, this is the only time at like rock climbing because it was the f- most in my body and the most present I had felt in my adult life when I was climbing outdoors for the first time. And, and still, because like 
when there's nothing below you and I mean, you have a rope, but you're gonna, even if you fall, it's still 25 feet. Like yeah. there was that, like there was, I was fully present. And yeah. that is what I felt today. That was so beautiful. But like, I think an added layer to, and the trainer was also telling me, she's like, some, she's like something shifted with you today. Cause mm -hmm. I, it was like mindless. Like we were moving together and it was yeah. just like this, like, beautiful like yeah just this like almost loss of the self like this connection between these two beings that was so so special um yeah and then the other thing that i was thinking about when you were talking is that i've been wondering like at some well two things one is there a future potentially with combining like psychedelic therapy for the person and equine therapy because i do think that there's this powerful sync with like you know um again one of the things that the trainer told me she's like she's like a horse will know what you are feeling mm -hmm. more intimately than any human being ever will like, like oh, that yeah. they just it's just automatic and there's something about like I, I can't remember if we talked about this last time but i feel like when when we are witnessed or i call it the empathic witness when when we when a part of us that has felt alone and has suffered alone has felt unlovable has felt um you know shamed is that you know the healing the the, the catharsis the release comes from when we can re-experience it and not be alone with it and i i call it you know the empathic witness that's just a term that that i've come up with for myself and like that's where I wonder, like, with if, if one combines something with a horse who does really see you at that level. And Christine's shown me all these beautiful videos when she went to her training and, like, she was on the ground crying and the horse came next to her and lied yeah. down. Like, yeah. I wonder if there's space for, anyway, now I'm just going off on major tangents, but no, I'm like, amazing. Um, that, and then the other thing that's interesting is about, she also has a couple of horses that have been traumatized. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not sure how, how deep into psychedelics you've gotten, because again, we didn't get a chance to talk about it last time, but- Today is the day. <laughs> there was this one study that was done about four or five years ago that MAPS um, supported where they gave MDMA to octopuses, where MD octopuses, I guess, are usually pretty antisocial. Uh -huh. um, they like to have their own space and stuff. And they did this study, they gave the octopuses MDMA and uh, they spent significantly more time in the same compartment instead of separated, which was interesting. Wow. And then um, one of my other friends also has a, a dog that's like really has bad PTSD. Like it's, mm -hmm. it really it has a hard time, but she's, she really, she loves adopting um, dogs that are struggling that like no one else likes to adopt. But um, I was talking to Rick Doblin, the guy who started MAPS, and I was like, hey, I was like, what do you think about like, MDMA therapy for dogs. And he's like, absolutely. He's like, I've given my dogs MDMA. <laughs> I'm like, what? And he has Whoa. these two like 80 pound labs. And so we talked about it and I'm like, what happened? And he's like, well, he's like, my dogs don't have PTSD. He's like, cause they were raised really, really healthfully. He's like, but yeah, he's like, they were super loving and close and like rubbing us and just hanging out more. So just separate from that, because like, you know, usually veterinary, medicine including psychiatry follows what he I mean, right i mean sadly i think people give horses and dogs like ssris and stuff but um you know it's made me think if there's less of a psychological resistance for horses you know then then you know because horses probably don't feel shame yeah 
you know, if there are horses that have trauma, you know, and we, we did give them psychedelic, like, especially MDMA, I actually think that, you know, one could heal, help them heal a lot quicker. So anyway, there's what <laughs> not expect to talk about any of this if, today. If PETA is listening, this is all like being talked about by someone who researches <laughs> this professionally. Um, but okay, so you mentioned maps. I really do want to talk to you about what maps is. We need to get into the, into this. And I know it's like, I think obviously at this point after I'll have, there'll be one podcast. This is the second one, the psychedelic research and healing isn't all of what you do, but it definitely is something. And it's something that I think a lot of people are very curious about. Um, So what is maps and how did you find your way to it? so interestingly, I can't, um, you'll have to remind me if I'm going on, like if I'm repeating anything from last time, um, okay. that's not, not necessary perhaps. But so MAPS is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Um, and it was founded by a guy named Rick Doblin. Um, and it is le- like legitimately, and actually I finally, there was an article done on him, I think in GQ recently, where it's, where they, they someone said, you know, by something about the psychedelic renaissance by arguably the person who started it, which I think is completely accurate. Um, so I don't know how old, you know, the demographics of your listeners, but I, I'm weirdly a lot of, a lot of ages. It spans from like on my little like analytics when somehow the algorithm can like tell (laughs) the ages of people listening. My age group is like 17 to 56. It's like every (laughs) age. Yeah. Yeah, it's That's a great. lot. It's a big range. Um, so I mentioned that because so Rick started MAPS in 1986. Oh, um, wow. And the reason why that's significant is for many reasons. So I, I was born in 80 and 86 stands out to me because um, like that, that's when the Space Shuttle Challenger blew up. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Space Shuttle Challenger, but anyone that was alive knows. It was like one of those September 11th moments because yeah. it was on TV. It was a space shuttle that blew up, basically. Um, I was in first grade and everyone in the world was like watching this on TV. It blew up. And the reason I bring that up is because like Rick Doblin at that time was like, I'm going to make like, like the government three years before had made MDMA illegal. Before that, it was like not even on the government's radar. Mm-hmm. Um, therapists had been using MDMA for therapy for at least a decade. Um, and it had gotten on their radar because of the rave scene. And so they made it illegal. And Rick was so passionate that he was like, this, like, like this has to be available to the, to the community, to the world. For, for those him. who don't know, what is MDMA, basically? So, Great question. So MDMA is classically, it's, so it's, um, it's the active in, like the most active ingredient in what used to be called ecstasy. So, mm-hmm. so MDMA, it's like the, the pure um, empathogenic part of ecstasy. So ecstasy back in the 80s and 90s used to be sort of a mixture of different things. There was usually MDMA in it. There was speed meth were the three most common things in it for anyone that used to use it. Um, And then people started saying, oh, well, you know, meth isn't good for you and speed isn't good for you. So then there was this movement then to like isolate MDMA. Mm -hmm. Um, So it is a pharmaceutical compound. It was discovered quite a long time ago, I think in the 1920s or 30s um, by Merck, but it just wasn't used Mm -hmm. for, for a long time. 
So um, I would categorize it as a psychedelic. Some people would not, but um, I, my definition of a psychedelic is um, one that Stan Groff, who is, uh, we may or may not talk about more. He's like sort of the, the, the first psychedelic psychiatrist. So he's in his early 90s, but um, he's, he's still around. But uh, he was really the first to, to really do psychedelic psychotherapy. But anyway, he, his definition of a psychedelic is um, non, a nonspecific amplifier of the unconscious, which I think is just you know, a beautifully accurate and open definition, meaning we all at this point, you know, agree that there's an unconscious, there's some things that we tuck away, some memories, some emotions. And so a psychedelic basically gives us access to that stuff. Mm. How, how, which parts of it, it gives it, gives us access to how deeply it goes, how long we have access to that is different between the different molecules. Um, and the amount of time that it opens up is different between, you know, depending on the dose. Um, and if we, if we wanted to get into that, we could, but, but basically, so yeah, MDMA is, um, in terms of getting back to now to, to the current times in the excitement around psychedelic therapy, it's the furthest along in terms of getting approval. So it's a legal medicine. Okay. Um, so Rick started this in 1986 and then he's slowly been doing research and it took a really, really long time. Um, and yeah, he was, he was really ridiculed for a long time. Like, like, and it was a hard, you know, it was really hard to, for him to get funding and stuff, but he, again, the, and, throughout the 80s and 90s kept pushing and pushing. And um, yeah, they started publishing, they published their first really big study with PTSD. So MDMA and, and MAPS has focused on the indication of MDMA for post-traumatic stress disorder. He targeted it specifically. Curious, we can get into that. Um, but that has been the treatment population for it, which I think is kind of nice because I think anxiety disorders tend to be fear-based disorders and MDMA, right of all of the psychedelics is definitely the most empathogenic and safety inducing. And so okay. I think it is a beautiful pairing to put together. Yeah. Um, and is yes, that why he targeted that audience is that um, it was kind of the most clear, like binary, like op binary to it, to what the treatment no. offered? Actually his, his decision for PTSD was actually a political one. Um, Rick, oh, wow. Rick is okay. an, one of the most clever people I know. So um, he actually, at one point in the 80s, sued the DEA because the way they, um, we schedule drugs within the DEA to say mm -hmm. like what's, what's allowed, what's not, what a doctor can prescribe, what's not. And the most restrictive is something called Schedule 1. Mm -hmm. By definition, that means two things, that the drug is, has been shown to have no medical benefit and that it's highly addictive. Okay. And actually... MDMA is never shown to be either of those things. And actually most things in schedule one have never been shown. All the psychedelics are still listed as schedule one. Marijuana is listed as schedule one. So um, it's Shouldn't more- like it's alcohol more be considered a schedule no, one? You know what? You're brilliant. You're, you're, I have thought for years- It the should. Two that, the two things that do fit that is alcohol and nicotine. Cigarettes, yeah. Only, Cigarettes you're the only person that has- ever said that so <laughs> you it uh, makes no sense like we yeah. no one's like going out like drive if you got like drink and drive no one is like smoking a joint <laughs> exactly. going out and killing someone yeah the amount of harm that like alcohol has caused 
in exactly. comparison to weed. I'm sorry. Yeah. And like, I come from a family where like, there's a lot of addiction around marijuana. <laughs> like if anyone's going to see it as like a problematic drug, it's me. Totally. Alcohol like totally outweighs. Yeah. No, and it that actually fits, it fits the definition. Alcohol. Yeah, no, it does. That's why I just asked. Definition. And, and not only are they not scheduled, they're actually, uh, you know, they're for profit industries. So anyway, that makes sense. Great. not to get on that. <laughs> no, the, the point is to tell a quick story. So Rick actually sued the DEA saying, you guys are not following your own rules. Yeah. And he actually won the case, but they still decided to not reschedule, which was interesting. So then that's when he focused on the research. And then the first major paper, because it took a long time, you know, clinical trials get take a long time for pharmaceutical companies, let alone doing it through the nonprofit status. Mm-hmm. So up until one month ago, Rick had done all of this 100% on donations. Um, and so, yeah, so he, yeah, the, the big studies started in like, sorry, were published around 2014, um, mm-hmm. which is literally just around that time. I think I talked a little bit about when I was in residency um, in Boston at Harvard, my second year, I had this like big mental health crisis. Mm-hmm. And um I think I had shared that my best this friend. This is when you time, went to the, you came and the girlfriend exactly. who was also the tutor had MDM. <laughs> exactly. Oh, and so yeah. what happened then literally at that same time, it was interesting because at that time there was only, there was a couple people at Johns Hopkins university doing research on psychedelics. There was a couple people at NYU, but that was it. This was back in 2012. Okay. And in my outpatient clinic, so it was my first year um, doing outpatient psychiatry, like I was just assigned a room. And that entire year, I had been next door to this guy named John Halpert. And the reason he's significant, and like most people don't, he's not involved in research anymore. But he actually did the first MAPS MDMA trial ever at Harvard. Um, Meaning he did it, he was the first person to do an MDMA trial flat out anywhere. And he did it at the hospital I was working at. Oh, wow. He didn't end up finishing the study because um, just some personal stuff that he was going through, um, divorce and stuff. But the point is that like the one person in the country, unless I had gone to, you know, Hopkins or NYU, all of a sudden as I got interested in psychedelics happened to be right next door to me. So I actually... After that time, I actually tried DMT. Like it was like six months into it, I'd never said a word to him. I knocked on his door and I'm like, "Hey, John! Like I just tried this thing called DMT. Can I talk to you about psychedelics?" And he's like, "Absolutely." So then, um, we kept talking about it for a few months, and then um, I was getting more and more interested. And and, because I I think I'd mentioned last time, I considered dropping out of psychiatry because I was just like so disillusioned by it. But then when I found psychedelics, I'm like, "Oh, like maybe I'll stick around to, to work on this." And so John, yeah, got enough. Yeah, we just became friends. And he's like, yeah, you should meet my buddy. He like does psychedelic research. He lives down the street. And I'm like, okay, like, let's go do that. Um, And it turned out his buddy was Rick Doblin, who lived two blocks from the hospital I was at, which again, that's like when all these like little synchronicities started happening, because like, I had no idea what MAPS was. I didn't like, and he was basically, you know, and remains the largest figure in the world that's doing this. And like, he happened again, be two blocks from our hospital because he had he had moved earlier to to Boston to get his PhD um, and raise his family there so like it just all these little things started coming in so anyway that's how I got exposed to maps um, and and Rick and yeah then I got into the training uh, a couple years later and I I formally got trained to do MDMA therapy and so how does maps function today like what does it do and what does it look like and all of that 
So Maps has changed a lot, right? Because it basically began Rick with Rick in his attic and by mm -hmm. himself. Um, and I talked to him recently. So now it's like a combination nonprofit and um, what's called a public benefit corp. And it's basically, it's because it's gotten so large because it's cost so much money to do. Now they're in phase three trials, um, which I should say, so the, the, the clinical trial phase to become some, for anything to become a medicine, there's phase one, phase two, phase three clinical trials for the FDA. Basically mm -hmm. phase one is usually like, is it safe? Phase two is, does it seem to work? Mm -hmm. And then phase three is, okay, phase two worked and let's see if it works at a large scale. Okay. So MAPS has now been doing phase three clinical trials with MDMA for about two years. It's mm -hmm. the first time a psychedelic has ever made it to phase three. So it's a big deal. But these are large trials. They have to be multi-center. Um, so, you know, whereas, you know, his budget was relatively low. I think, you know, the first 30 years of MAPS, I think it, you know, I think the budget for the entire 30 years was something around $30 million. Yeah. Um, it's like 50 million a year right now. And he's got... I think he last time I talked to him, it's now like over 110 full-time employees, oh, and wow. uh, there's like 10 different sites around the country. So they're essentially a um, a company, uh, sorry, a nonprofit who is doing drug development, essentially. You know, um, and and it's 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 rare. It's one of the few times ever that a a, a medication will come to market almost purely through nonprofit. Um, the only other, one of the other major examples is, is, is uh, plan B. So the mm -hmm. sort of, uh, so for um, next day, you know, prevention of pregnancy, um, that was also brought through with nonprofit, but it's rare for, for, you know, someone to invest time and, and energy into making something a medicine from the nonprofit route. So do the MAPS sites themselves administer to like potential, I guess you would call them a patient, do they administer MDMA or they focus on training other therapists such as yourself to administer the MDMA? Great question. So yeah, I didn't actually, you're, you're reminding me, I didn't give a complete, sorry. So, so the, the clinical trial and making MDMA a medicine ha, has been the focus of MAPS from the beginning. Okay. Uh, once they started becoming a large organization, they also have an arm that focused on um, political action and decriminalization of psychedelics. Um, and they also have um, an arm of now training, which has really picked up in the last year and a half because mm -hmm. it's like, you know, yeah, and we'll talk about it more. Like, I, I think the psychedelics are a tool, you know, it's like, you know, you know, the first human who made a hammer or something, but then you need also knowledge of, of how to use the tool to make it effective. And so, um, yeah, psychedelics are powerful. Um, we're, we're, you know, again, they give us access to this material that we have, but then we need, as I was saying earlier, this term, this empathic witness. And so how do we train people to be able to support the arising of this part of us that has been so suppressed and has felt yeah. like it didn't want to come out? And that's, that's like the major thing, I think the challenge right now, and MAPS is definitely training, but, um, you know, also you as a, as a you know, your, your training to become a therapist. It's like it, you know, really, when, you know, my, my first therapy supervisor, I remember telling him when I was super eager um, about therapy in the beginning, I'm like, what, what books should I buy? And what training should I do? And he's like, mm -hmm. was like, can't remember if I said this last time, but he's like beautiful 80 year old man with blue eyes. And he's like, well, he's like, you're going to learn to do therapy in two ways. He's like doing your own therapy 
and seeing more patients. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, so it's, it's, it's interesting. It's a little understandably frustrating right now because there's all this energy behind psychedelic therapy. There's all this media in the last year. Um, the decriminalization movement has moved. So meaning like some states and some cities have decriminalized psychedelics. So access is there. But the actual healers, um, there's, there's very, very few. Um, I mean, I can count on two hands the number of people who I, I think are like just masterful at psychedelic therapy. Yeah. Um, so it's a little bit of a, of a frustrating time right now because a lot of people are struggling with mental health and they, they want and they're hearing about this treatment and they're just, it's going to be, it's going to be, I think decades before we really have the ability to offer it to, to most people in a way that is well, with a lot of integrity that's also affordable. So is it, I'm now asking all like the little questions cause I'm so like specific ones. Cause I'm just like, there's so much I'm curious about basically like, is it legal now as a therapist? Like if I came to you wanting MDMA therapy, could you give it to me? No. So um, right now, so like I said, M MDMA is the psychedelic that's furthest ahead, um, right. which is still in phase three clinical trials. So it's so only you have to be a part of a clinical trial to get yeah. it. Okay. In, in the United States, um, psilocybin or mushrooms is about uh, three years behind. And I'll <laughs> say that. So, so for, for people listening, MDMA therapy, even though it's like number one in terms of pace, Mm -hmm. probably 2024 before before it becomes a, a widely available legal treatment so it, okay it's, it's a while um the only one that that is kind of legal which people have heard of certainly by now or a lot of people is ketamine but, but yeah ketamine, i was gonna ask you about what that what the deal is with the ketamine clinics yeah ketamine works very differently though and i think um you know you know, so, so the way I've seen psychedelics, right, is that psychedelics tend to amplify and evoke memories and emotions, right, which has been the opposite of what psychiatry has done. Psychiatry has suppressed, right? We use anti-anxiety meds, antidepressants. We try to tamp down where um, psychedelics bring things up. Mm -hmm. Ketamine is the only of the psychedelics that doesn't actually bring up emotion. It actually it's a dissociative anesthetic classically, meaning ketamine has been known, funny when we're talking about horses, right? People, people think of it as a horse train. It's horse, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so it's me, like in high school, the like the naughty boys in like college and high school that I would hang around would be like, you ride horses, can you get us K? And I'm like, what? no, <laughs> no, <laughs> like what? Wow. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, so it's been used for decades as an anesthetic. I mean, it, it, it's the most cheap and effective anesthesia medicine for surgeons to use. So it's been mm -hmm. around for a long time. Long story short, like 50, about 20 years ago, some surgeon was like collecting data on his surgeries and noticed that his patients who were depressed, who got ketamine as their anesthetic, were less depressed. So that's when it started as like a mental health treatment. Um, but it's interesting, right? Again, it's dissociative, meaning it's, it separates mind and body, which mm -hmm. is if you separate mind and body enough, that's why you can cut the body and you don't feel the pain. Right. 
right? So that's why it works differently than the others. And that's why we also see some significant addiction with ketamine because it removes pain consistently. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting though, because it's legal right now because it's been available to doctors for decades. So um, people, yeah, once that sort of word got out about psychedelics and people like, meaning in the business world, especially or um, investors caught wind of, oh, this is now available. Then these ketamine clinics started popping up in the last like year and a half, two years. But um, yeah, that most of them are not working at a, I would say a, a high level of integrity. Okay. Ketamine certainly has its role, um, but it's certainly being over, over marketed right now. Yeah. Once like I was dry, when I, I take the, the highway to, to go to ride or the freeway to go to riding and yeah. like, um, and once you start seeing like sponsored highway, like signs of like ketamine clinic, I feel like it's a little off. Oh God. See, I, I'm lucky. <laughs> I haven't even seen that in LA yet. Oh yeah. LA. I don't want to see it. Oh, yeah. It's oh. on the 405 North. It's insane. Um, so you've obviously like bore witness to MDMA therapy, like at work. Yeah. What first I want to ask, like in your opinion, who is like the like primary, like who in your case, like what's an example of somebody that would benefit from MDMA therapy the most? And if you could share like a, like a moment that you've seen happen or like some amazing experience using, sure. yeah, I would love to hear like what you've For seen. The other thing, I mean, I'll share, I, so I've, I've taken MDMA as well, both as a, as a patient as well. And, and, mm -hmm. and I, one of the times I took it was with, um, it's part of the training. So, oh, so wow, okay. also there's this, there's this separate really cool clinical trial that MAPS got approved for healthy volunteers, mm -hmm. but basically they used it for, they've been using it for their therapists that have gotten trained and they're honoring that, well, you need to actually try this also to know how it works at least once. Um, I also have my own MDMA underground therapist that I'm open about working with. So, you know, the example that I'll say is that like, so I think the mind-body connection, I think is something that's very important to like, to, to talk about because I think, you know, the Western world as a whole, you know, and we can get into why, but basically Descartes in the, in the, in the beginning of science started really valuing the mind and started valuing science and evidence, right? Where I, I've started realizing to me, in, like I use these two phrases, it's like evidence of the mind as opposed to evidence of the heart. Like thinking, I believe something is true as opposed to feeling something is true, mm -hmm. right? And there's a, we can get into the details of that. But I bring that up because the Western world is basically shifted towards mind and science. That is what is important. That's what's valued. That's what's true, mm -hmm. right, is what we can prove scientifically. And the, in, within psychology, um, Freudian psychology has really also focused on mind, right? A lot of my patients have come in or, you know, my first therapist for the first five years, I was in psychoanalysis, classic four days a week on the couch, my therapist was behind me. Mm -hmm. um, but it was mostly all mind work, right? It was, it was, it, it's not that it wasn't helpful, but it was like, okay, so, you know, I'm feeling this now, this is what I'm struggling with, with my romantic partnerships, and oh, this is my relationship with my mother. And there was some moments of release of emotion, but not much. And so, you know, it, 
what I'm describing is sort of this, a lot of people's, you know, history with therapy is like, okay, like I understand now why I'm acting the way I'm acting, or I understand now why, you know, I'm in these patterns, but I still don't feel better. Yeah. And, the, and the, that's when the distinction between the mind and body comes in, right? Because I also think about it as like, if we, if we understand a trauma in the mind and again, like, Oh, this happened when I was five and this and that, but if our body still feels and holds that energy and emotion, like the, the mind has a sense of time, right? And it knows it's 2022 and it knows I'm safe. I'm no longer being mm -hmm. bullied in high school, but my body, unless it's released it, the body has no sense of time. Right. So, so anything that's a threat ends up getting felt again. So the reason I'm kind of giving this background is that for most people, the reason we suffer is physical feelings and symptoms. That usually one way out of those is, is those end up turning into thoughts or criticisms about ourselves or self-limitation, but the root almost always is a physical symptom. But, but most people don't even connect that because we've lost touch with the body. Yeah. So one of the things that MDMA and the classic psychedelics, meaning LSD, mushrooms, and even ayahuasca do, is they, again, they, they, they're nonspecific amplifiers. So they give us both access to the mind and the body. So all of a sudden, we can start connecting two things together, not just the story of what happened when we were a kid, but the feeling. So the example I'll give you is that, um, it was interesting, when I did my legal um, MDMA session with MAPS, it was, I, I was flying out to Colorado to do it on, I always remember, um, it was Valentine's Day 2017. And it was significant because I had just broken up with some, or someone broke up with me. And I was like, just feeling really down and lonely. And, and for me, this, this, I'm alone, no one loves me, that, that's always been this narrative that always came up around breakups. Mm -hmm. And in my therapy, I had a little bit before that had remembered a memory about when I was nine and that my dad used to, uh, he was an alcoholic um, for most of my childhood and he used to beat me uh, re with relative frequency. And, but there was this one time I remember when I was nine that it was like the, the worst time he'd ever beat me. And it was like, I won't get into, I could get into the story why, but I don't want to use too much time there. But I remembered in therapy that I, I was hit and hit and hit. And there was it, like, I remember it in my, my child's mind. I'm like, he's not stopping when he normally stops. And I thought he was going to kill me. Um, like, I remember thinking that as a kid. Um, he didn't, obviously. But then I remember running to my room. And then all of a sudden, uh, and at that time, he like, he like, stri like, he stripped me down to my underwear. That's just what he used to do. And he's like, whipped me with his belt. Um, and I remember going to my room and I like was hugging myself. And then all of a sudden I felt this sensation that I had never felt. And I looked in the mirror and there, there was like these welts from the belt that were there. Mm -hmm. And then I remember grabbing my pillow and crying into the pillow saying, nobody loves me, nobody loves me. And then I remember my mom opened the door and she's like, what are you talking about? Of course we love you. And then shut the door. The reason I bring that up is because that narrative that I used to tell myself after breakups of nobody loves me, I finally connected like, holy shit, like that, this is this old narrative. Like how could this little kid who like really believed his parents didn't love him, how, how would that kid ever be open to feeling anyone could love him? 
right? Mm -hmm. And so the reason I'm bringing that up is that in the mind, I had remembered that. Like, again, it was 27, or, yeah, 2017, I had just broken up, uh, had been broken up with. I felt lonely, but I'm like, I get this in my head, but I'm still really struggling right now. Like, mm -hmm. like, like what's, I was almost like, this is almost more cruel because I'm like, I have all this insight into what happened, but I still feel terrible. And so the difference was though, all of it didn't come out during that next session, but over subsequent psychedelic sessions, including that one, is I started connecting the story with the physical feeling of being alone, like what it was like for that kid. Mm -hmm. And then was able to like have the, the crying and there was shaking in particular the last time I went where it was like, then the mind and body were experiencing both the way it was like probably experienced the first time, but there was no witness. Right. I had all this like shock when I was nine. Yeah. And not only was I alone with it, I actually had my mom say like, what are you talking about? You know? So it was this like reinforcement of like, I can't even believe what I'm saying to myself. So what psychedelics do by giving us access to this old pot of emotion and memory is that it then allows the opportunity for these things to be re-experienced and be witnessed. And it's in that combination of being, feeling it fully and being witnessed that there's this finally this like release that is like permanent. You know what I mean? Instead of carrying it and trying to like, you know, repeat patterns with partners and this and that, it finally just released. And I remember specifically, like after one session, um, it was actually that, that session in Colorado, I always had like the girlfriend that got away. There was always that one where I'm like, ah, oh, like I always like wished that I'd done different or I'd be like, oh my God, like, and after that, it all like wiped. All of a sudden I started seeing all of the old patterns and like yeah. all of a sudden, like there was no desire to reconnect with my exes. I, I, I still like love many of them. I appreciate them, but there was this energetic release from it, you know? Yeah. And so that's, you know, I'll give, I gave that long story because I would say anyone who struggles with these old things that have not been released, which I would honestly say is, everybody um, um, can, can benefit from this release, right? There is subtlety within diagnosis though. I do think that there's certain, what we're gonna see is that there's certain diagnoses that are more apt to the way MAPS does it, um, how their protocol is set up. Like they do weekly therapy and then once every four weeks you do MDMA mm -hmm. and you repeat that three times. That okay. particular way of doing it, I think, fits certain diagnoses. Um, there's a couple like what, what people would label, and I don't like labeling. We can get into that if you're interested. Like, but what people label as personality disorders, um, mm -hmm. I think, could also benefit, but it requires a different container. Like, it, will, it would have to be like a, a different support system. Um, yeah. What are the words? It's the the setting, the set, and the. Yeah, set, and set, set setting and dose, I think, are really the okay. things that matter most. Um, the other two things I would say are addiction issues and then eating disorders. Um, I think all of them are treatable with MDMA or other psychedelics. They're just going to require a different 
protocol than what MAPS is putting out there right now. Sorry, yeah. I know I just talked for like a really long time. No, <laughs> my God, for, I, I completely resonate with it. I mean, first of all, thank you so much for sharing on such a kind of vulnerable level and so, so honestly, um, mm -hmm. yeah, I really, yeah, I really um, received that. And it's beautiful to hear how you have, you're able to reflect on your sort of like that kind of heavy experience. I can't even like describe the experience that you just sort of recalled, but it's amazing how you're able to speak about it now and how you've been able to process it in your life as you've kind of evolved. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, and then also, yeah, just in terms the connection that you made with that experience you had when you were very young and then relating it to your relationship to being, I guess, like unlovable and alone now yeah, is really amazing to hear. And it, it's, it kind of, it's, I'm very curious about, cause I've kind of had a similar epiphany, but I, it wasn't around psychedelic treatment. And I still, as much as I've had this sort of connect, made this connection between an experience that I had and the way that I, cause I, my, an eating disorder was my, and is still a big thing for me. Um, cause I think that even though like I'm technically healthy now, um, I'm, it's a daily thing in my life. Yeah. Um, but I'm curious, even though I've made this kind of connection that I'll tell you about before we run out of time, I'm curious to see how, if I were to bring it into a psychedelic treatment to further that, if it would like benefit me in a totally different way and kind of more um, profound way than just having made the connection. Because so what happened for me was that I've always felt when I was a child, I was never really like a very, and this is a strange, I was always like a, I wasn't like a larger child. I was all, I've always been a petite person, but I was definitely like, I had baby fat. I was like a bigger little kid, but not even really. Cause I look back, I had this narrative that I was like a very fat baby, but I look at pictures of myself now as a baby and as a little girl. And I was in no way a like quote unquote fat baby. I was like a very healthy, normal little, little kid, but I created this thing and I, I knew that, so when I had kind of do, like started to do a lot of writing around my eating disorder and, and thinking about it, I knew that the thing that kept me in my, so when I went to college and I went from being like bulimia, I developed as like a, it was like, it made me feel comfortable and it's, it was a very quick soothing thing in the senior year of high school. I would like nervously eat. I was never a huge binge eater, but I would nervously eat and then I would feel super overwhelmed and like I needed to get rid of it, but it wasn't even when I would then purge, it was like I could feel the every emotion that I felt leaving. And that was the comfort for me because I wasn't eating this enormous amount of food that was physically uncomfortable. It was like an emotional purge. And then when I went to college, it became a restrictive thing. Um, and that kind of level of control was satisfying for me and filled this void. And then I was in this all of a sudden very small body. Mm -hmm. um, I went, I'm like, five, five. And I think I weighed like 92 pounds or something, which is like pretty small. Yeah. And I felt this, um, it's interesting because I felt connected to that smallness on such a deep level. And it's like, I didn't, before I was that size, I had this thing that I kind of refer to as like reverse body dysmorphia, where like, I didn't look at myself in the mirror in high school when I was probably like weigh a little bit more than I weigh now. 
um, like healthy weight, I didn't look at myself and see like an enormously obese person. Like a lot of body dysmorphic people look in the mirror and they see a lot of X, like they see themselves as being way bigger than they, than they are. Yeah. I would look in the mirror and I would see myself as much smaller than I actually was. Like when I would look at a picture of myself in like eighth grade, ninth grade, I, it didn't register to me. I would look at it and be like, this doesn't look like me. I don't look like that. And then when I got to college and I became physically very small, I finally looked at myself and saw pictures of myself. And I was like, this is what I've looked like all along. This is me. This is what I look like. And I really went into what that was about mm -hmm. and why I was so attached to this small body and why I resonated with her on such a deep level. And I think it was because I have always felt inside like a very delicate, fragile person. I'm so emotional. I'm very sensitive. But from when I was little, I think I always felt like I had this coat of armor on me that I equated to my actual like flesh, like my body. I like mm. was never a really delicate, frail looking child. I was a healthy child. And I equated that size to being this like armor. And I was had a lot of emotional baggage sort of piled onto me from a very young age from like my parent, my mom's sobriety to like yeah. my brother was born on the autism spectrum. I always knew that in some way I would have to take care of it. There were a lot of different things that were sort of, I was aware of from a very young age and it was a lot, a big emotional burden. Yeah. And when I became really little, like physically frail looking in college, finally, finally everyone stopped with the piling of the baggage because it didn't look like I could take it. Didn't look like I could take it. Finally, people stopped because it looked like I couldn't uh, handle it physically. Yes. And I loved it. It was such a relief to me. I didn't care. My doctors were telling me I would get wow. osteoporosis. I had lost my period. I was so exhausted. I couldn't handle anything. But I was finally relieved of so much. And it was amazing. And it kept me, I adored my small body because of that. And it was horrible because it was literally killing me. But it was the most relieved I've felt emotionally in my entire life. And I thought about what I've been, I, so I figured that out a few years ago, that I loved my small body because it was an emotional relief of like people, it didn't look like I could handle it anymore. So people, st I felt relieved of this emotional burden. So in the kind of the over I've known that over the past couple of years and then recently I've been doing a lot of writing about just moments in my childhood and I wrote about this I recalled this one moment and I think that I I think this is what started my equating my physical body to emo, my emotional capacity. So I was having dinner one night and I loved pasta as a child like bread and pasta and anything starchy was like my jam. Yeah, I was sitting at my dad's house and it was my dad, my stepmother at the time, who was always very emotionally abusive to me and a few family friends and my brother. And I remember, I don't, I can't remember if my brother was there, but I was sitting there with this like plate of pasta and somebody at the table, I think it was either my dad, I don't think it was my dad, but it could have been, I don't, I think I just like blacked out. Somebody pointed to my plate and said, what are we going to do about her? What are we going to do about this? She's only eating starch. Look like she's, it's not healthy. And my stepmother kind of pointed at me and said, and so somebody said that. My brother then said, I don't think we should be talking about this in front of her. My no. stepmother then pointed at me and said, look at her. She can take it. Because it makes me want to cry. Said, look at her. She can take it. 
Wow. And you can allow yourself to cry. Wow. And that was the, the yeah. moment that I was like, look at me. I can take it. I'm, I think I was like seven or six. Like I was a little girl, but because I wasn't, I guess wow. this like as small, physically small as my stepmom deemed would have like exempt me from hearing <clears throat> something that harsh. I yeah. was physically bigger. So it looked like I could handle it. And that was the moment that I think I, I felt myself physically and I thought, okay, so the amount of harshness and cruelty that people yeah. think is okay for me and that I can handle is fully based on how I look. Yes. And I think a huge, and this is getting like really profound, but a huge thing for me is that like, and it goes to like people fat shaming, fat phobia, like just what all of people when you see another human being, I think a big thing that happens is people assess their size, the physical size. It's like an animal or something. Like not we are animals, but it's like a like a like a beast or like you, you look at the size. It's like a horse. You like look at the size and you think, how much weight can they take? Yeah. And it happens with humans. I think people that are physically larger are on the receiving end of a lot more outward harshness and cruelty because it looks like they can physically handle it and that really needs to stop it's a huge thing that i think about a ton and it's something too where like i think that's why for a lot of i don't really know about men and i'm sure it's true for men but for women i think there's a sort of degree of shame that comes with like i know that it's a huge trigger for a lot of women when when you hear oh you look so healthy like when, for me, recovering from an eating yeah. disorder, if someone said to me, you look so healthy, it was like daggers in my heart. I like hated hearing that I looked healthy mm. because it, wow. <clears throat> it implies that you can take a certain amount of like, you're strong, you can take it. And that for me, it's made it really hard for me to become physically healthy again, because I think I've been terrified that when I become physically healthy, which now I am, that it's going to get emotionally really difficult for me again, that I'm not numbed out to all this stuff. And it's happened recently. I kind of pretty at the end of last year, went through a breakup um, in November and, um, and I, I really hope we're not like, we're basically, we have time. I need to, I need to tell you I, I this. I can go, I can over. Okay. I can go over so this. I haven't told anyone that I've told like a close friend this, but something amazing happened during this breakup. And honestly, like the breakup, was I couldn't l still love or trust this person more. He's, I adore him. He sees me like no, I, it was a very healthy breakup. During the actual event of the breakup, I looked at him and I was sobbing and shaking and like totally having an out of body experience. And I said something to him. And in the last months of the breakup, I was definitely mental health wise backsliding a bit. I looked at him and I said that I heard myself say this thing that I had never said to myself and that I had never even thought about like, co like cognizantly. I had never like a, I had never heard this thought in my head or outwardly. Yeah. And I looked at him and I said, I'm so afraid I'm going to disappear. I'm so afraid. And I was repeating it. I'm so afraid I'm going to disappear. And he held me and he said, you're not going to disappear. I promise you, you're not going to disappear. I didn't even know that that was a fear of mine that I had. Wow. And afterwards, I think if you would have asked, I know if you would have asked me, Hero, what's going to happen, like months ago, what's going to happen if this person who so much of your identity and your well-being 
you you've rooted his presence in what will happen if he's just not in your life anymore all of a sudden I would have said, oh, I'm going to regress to where I was years ago. I'll probably become anorexic. I'm not going to see my friends. I'm going to isolate. I'm going to totally cope in the way that I knew how to cope that was very toxic. Yeah. Our breakup happened. The first week was obviously hell on earth. It felt like I was going to die. I cried more tears than I would ever imagine possible. Something happened to me in the following weeks that like, I've never taken such good care of myself physically and emotionally than I ever have in my whole adult life mm -hmm. or life in general. My weight didn't change. My, I had energy. I exercised. I took impeccable care of myself. And it's funny because mm -hmm. I've thought about it and there's almost a little tiny sense of like, oh, I wish I would have like lost a ton of weight and become frail again. Like there's a little bit of shame oh. in the fact that I just like <laughs> got even healthier and like that I'm here I am after this very dark emotional time yeah. and I'm like totally good. Like I feel my womanhood and my just like human and like my humanness in a way like and I told and I've seen him since and I told him do you remember when we were having this moment and I looked at you and I said, I'm so afraid I'm going to disappear. And he said, yes. And I said, I need to know, I need you to know that I've never felt more solidly here in my whole life. Wow. And I, I cry. It made me, it totally made me cry. And it's amazing. And it's, but it's terrifying. Like I'm currently scared of my being and feeling this healthy because I'm, there's a part of me that's terrified of like the emotional weight that I, it's, that it's gonna, that my, that being this healthy, like comes with feeling because when you're ill and when you can't physically take it, there's a certain amount of numbness that you have. Yep. Because when I talked about like people like stopping with the emotional, like, um, weight pudding because it looked like I couldn't take it. I don't even know that that was it. I think I just it might not have changed on the, on the other person's like doling it out and like my family or whoever. It was just, I think a lot of it was me numbing and like I just stopped receiving it. And I think when you're really healthy in your body and you have a strong mind-body connection, you can feel things on a level that you otherwise can't. And that is scary. So there's my rant of the no, evening. No, no. Um, yeah, lots, beautiful story. First Thank you. And, and, a tremendous amount of, of, of self-reflection that you're, you're demonstrating. It's really, it's really, really impressive. Um, like I said, I, I'm able to go over a little bit of time. Are you? Yeah, I have time. Because okay. there's some. So one of the things that I, I, I want to emphasize, just in case it didn't, is, is the physical catharsis, right? So I had two forms. I had a lot of crying and then there was a lot of shaking mm -hmm. and that's the part that it's hard unless you're there to show people why it's important it's not just like saying oh i shed a few tears it's like finally allowing the body to go through the process of releasing what it needed to that had been stored and right? this is and during the, the during the treatment during the mdma sessions um like ayahuasca when people think of ayahuasca they talk they think about vomiting where i i actually prefer the word purging because mm -hmm. purging is a way of releasing the body, this energy or the emotion from the body. For me, vomiting is a form of purging. Mm -hmm. Crying can be a form of purging. Shaking is a form of purging. But it's like the, the example I often give clients, you know, one of the things I tell people when I'm in session with them, when, and this came from one of my teachers, 
is when they start crying, I, I'll, I'll, except for one time, people go to wipe their tears. And I tell them, I invite you to not wipe your tears here because mm -hmm. it's these subtle signals. It's a subtle signal to wipe your tears, right? I have this like three and five-year-old niece and nephew. And just seeing them, like, like, you know what I mean? Like, or if you're around a six or eight month old, a six month old isn't gonna cry and wipe its tears, right? We learn to not express. And so I kind of think of my work as giving, per, helping people give themselves permission for these parts to come out again that have been suppressed for different reasons, right? And you gave this beautiful story of these connections of, and, and you use the word soothing at one point, which I love that you use the word soothing because the reason earlier I said I put in quotes personality disorders is because what I realized, what I realized as I deepened work into myself and with other and with other people is that the psychiatric diagnoses aren't really real things. Meaning there like there's been this like push, and your average psychiatrist would still believe that, you know, alcohol um, addiction, that that anorexia, that major depression, that all of these have a strong genetic component. Mm. And I actually think it's almost complete bullshit. And, and the re, you know, objective reasons is that, hey, you know, we've developed all this like complex medications and they don't work. But all of a sudden psychedelics are working for PTSD, for depression, for end of life anxiety, for there's even an eating disorder study. Like we're not all of a sudden getting the pharmacology right. It's because people are having these experiences and these catharses and they're being witnessed and all of a sudden it's working for everything. You know what I mean? So it's showing that the root of this stuff is held old emotion, old energy. The reason I wanted to say that I really like why I liked you using the word soothing or coping is because mm -hmm. that's kind of become one of the fun parts of, of, my work where it's become much simpler too i'm literally like listening to people and i'm like what are the stories you've started telling yourself and it's become very easy for me to just pick it out because most people have you know their one two or three top coping strategies right and you you, you said you know um eating has been one of yours it's actually been one of mine too so I, I used to weigh about 80 pounds heavier than i weigh right now and one of the interesting things is i always remember not that you want to know about all my trauma, but like um, at one point in terms of like, uh, I was raised Jehovah's Witness. And so like sex was always thought of as like, as I said, it's like, oh, premarital sex is evil. You're going to go to hell and all this stuff. And I remember at one point thinking, if I gain weight, I'm not going to look attractive. So therefore I'm going to gain weight. And I used to literally weigh 230 pounds. Like, oh, wow. it's like it was, and as I've done more healing work around like being okay with pleasure and love and all these things, it's like interesting, the weight has just come, like my appetite just shifted. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, when I think about it, it's just like the different diagnoses are just different ways that people as kids or as teens had access to, to deal with these feelings, right? For you, it was like, I'm feeling this stuff that I can't do anything with, or like they're, it's being thrown at me. And, oh, I find this thing I am able to use. And for a temporary period, it helps feel better, right? Whether it's restricting or what, bulimia. Or again, for me, for, for, for some people, then that becomes an addiction, but, but it's not really an addiction. It's a coping strategy. Like why wouldn't you use 
Adderall or Coke because it works for a little bit, right? It also comes with the negative parts of it. Completely. But I was actually thinking recently that there's much more subtle forms of coping. Like I actually think, like I was thinking this week that it's kind of like in three categories. Like there's certain coping strategies, or again, what we would call diagnoses that like people feel, I would say, empathy or sympathy for. I think eating disorders is one of those, especially I think restrictive eating. Like people are like, oh, poor them. Much more sympathy because yeah, usually, and this leads, the restrictive, when I was bulimic, I didn't lose any weight. It's when yeah. I was restricting that I then lost weight, yeah. became frailer, looked more delicate and tiny. And people are like, oh no, she's starving. Yeah. Yeah. People are much more sympathetic. And I have been in like overeaters and I went to like OA, Overeaters Anonymous, because sometimes yeah. like if you go the other way you go. I've been in rooms with like bulimics, bulimic people, overeater, like binge eaters, restrictor, like every, ver- people are hands down, even people going through the eating disorders are more sympathetic to the restrictors who are then usually anorexic. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Fascinating. Fascinating. <laughs> yeah. So what I was trying to say is that I, I've seen, so again, so it's interesting because we have some coping strategies, again, that we feel like sympathy for. Mm-hmm. We have some coping strategies that we're very judgmental of, right? Addiction would be a perfect example where, where, where we're like, these people are bad. They're like, look what they're doing. They're screwing up society or what people call antisocial personality or people who are violent, right? Again, some, some boys, because of how they grew up, that was all they had, right? Mm-hmm. And so we, we literally put people in jail for their coping strategy. Mm-hmm. It was, interestingly, one thing that hit me this week also was that some coping strategies in current society are rewarded. And, and what I'll say about that is that because like, and since, especially since doing um, the work with Goop and the, Net, the Netflix show, I, and here in LA, I've, I've worked with now a lot of like A-list celebrities, billionaires, and I've realized that I've had one of my coping strategies, which some of these people share, is accomplishment, mm-hmm. is getting degrees, is getting more money, is getting more attention. Meaning, but it's, it's interesting because these coping strategies are actually rewarded and desired in society. So I, I you know, what I, but, but the clients that come into me are often like, hey, I like sold the company for a billion and I felt nothing. Yep. or whatever really millions of followers and I feel nothing. So the thing is like, there's certain, I think, you know, it, it's, it's interesting because what I was thinking, what I was, what I meant is like, we all just grabbed the coping strategies that were available to us as kids. You know what I mean? Again, whether it was just keep going to school, make more money, do this. And especially it's interesting because like the one with money, especially I had this interesting thought the other day where like there is such a thing in the DSM or you know the way psychiatrists diagnose called hoarding disorder, right? Like there's, yeah. there's I have actual... my DSM for school right there. Yeah, but and it was interesting because I was thinking about this concept, and I don't know what it is right now. You know that that people judged the very wealthy. You know, and mm-hmm. it's, it's interesting because like I don't know what the number is now. It's like what point one percent of the population has whatever fifty percent of the wealth. Yeah, and again, in but most of the population still strives for wealth, and I and I don't think that wealth in and of itself is bad at all. I think it, it's what it, how we connect to it and what it means. The reason I bring this up though, is because if 0.1% of the population literally had 50% of the toilet paper, <laughs> no, literally, we would be like, there's something fucking wrong with those people. Well, like, yeah. like, what, <laughs> like, like, right? But, but it's because, 
So I just wanted to add to this, like, again, it, it, there's these like more hidden types of coping strategies that yeah. people suffer from Yeah. that like, and that's the thing, like working with some of these the clients I was mentioning, like, and they that actually don't get much sympathy and it's confusing to them because all of a sudden they're like, wait, I'm not even doing the, like, I don't enjoy doing what I'm doing, but I keep doing it. So the reason I wanted to mention that to connect it back to what you were saying about yourself at the end is that all of these coping strategies that we have had were, were protective to a younger version of ourselves, right? Like it helped you as a little girl developing your coping strategies for me to feel bigger and to feel like I wasn't going to be like pissing God off or, or to, you know, isolating myself has been another coping strategy for me. So as I like open up more and become more social, it's scary, right? It, it makes sense though, because if this part was actually helping us at a time when we didn't have any other options to let go of it, even though rationally now it makes sense. Like the body, usually if, if we're still like struggling with it, it's that the body has, still has a bit more to release, you know? And, and I don't think of it as like, it's an all or none thing. It's like each time we do a significant, you know, release or catharsis around this, um, yeah, we just release more and more. So, so mm -hmm. the story that you're telling me about, oh, wow, you thought it would be like this, but no, you feel like this. Mm -hmm. You're actually, you know, you're, you're, you're almost seeing both sides of it. You're like, oh, wow, wait, this old part that this, this feels. And so it just sounds to me like you're, you're sort of, yeah, yeah, continuing to, to really beautifully work through this for yourself. It's amazing um, too, because it's not even like, um, I think the part of me that's most proud of where I am now in terms of just my, like, mental state of being and emotional state of being and like and being in my body is that it didn't take a tremendous amount of like journaling or reflection or effort to get here this was naturally how my whole being like my body and mind and spirit and all of that this is how i coped with the situation and it was I'm so happy with how surprised I was by this being na the natural. Cause in like my wildest dreams, this would be the way I naturally reacted mm. and it happened yeah. and it's amazing. Um, and it's, that's been the most surprising thing. Like I, I spent so many years journaling and thinking about like, Oh, and like one day I'll, I'll be like this and this. And it's like, I didn't even think about it or man, quote unquote, like manifest this, um, state of being post this traumatic moment that I had. It just kind of happened. Yep. But there are things definitely like now that I'm here, there have for sure been moments in the last like couple weeks where I've like been really tempted to like eat and then purge or like been thinking of like being really critical of my body. And like there are certain temptations to go back there. Yep. And I've been reminding myself and like this is just my perception of the situation, who knows, but it's felt right for me to, I journal a lot, like every day, it's like so important to me um, to write. And it's usually in the morning and I've been, just been writing down these things to keep at front of mind to help myself move past these temptations. And a lot of it yeah. has been like, there is no shame around being healthy, strong, or powerful just you do not need to be physically smaller to feel emotionally delicate. Yes. And you do not need to take up less space. Your physical, the space that you're occupying, you don't need to earn 
and you don't need to worry about about it. You don't need to to constrict yourself and make yourself small just because you feel a certain way. Like you, you know. Yeah. So those Absolutely. have been things that I've been I, that I've been writing down. How do you do you find yourself sort of engaging in practices that have helped you to manage the yeah. coping mechanisms that you feel drawn to? Well, it's interesting because the most I mean, the answer to that is yes. And like, I think that the way I think about it is that like, I don't know, if I think of the, the, the example of a river, say if emotion and energy is, is, is like water, a river. So it's, it's meant to like come in, we receive it from people and then it's meant to come out, say in a ideal way for our body, right? Mm -hmm. Again, whether that's tears or shaking, et cetera. But then we we, we're taught to restrict these different forms of moving the energy, right? And so coping strategies end up becoming ways of like, we almost like put up dams on bends in the river on how it's supposed to come out. Because again, we think it's not allowed or we're literally told like you're not allowed. Um, and so then there almost becomes like the, 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 the fork in the river that becomes the path of least resistance to the water for years. Mm -hmm. And so in this work, I think about, you know, again, that empathic witness is so important because it almost gives permission to sort of break down the dams on the healthy ways to express the emotion. Mm -hmm. but, the, but, the, but the path that was so important to us at one time never really gets dammed up again completely there's always going to be that temptation, but the more practice we are into allowing it to these other places, that voice gets quieter and quieter and quieter. There's some things that I used to struggle with every day, like that were just part of me that might come up every few months, like, like yeah. the things that I never would have thought would have gone away. I'll also say there's definitely still some active things that I'm working on now, and I've done a lot of work on myself, and I, I, I have to practice this every day, you know? So. Um, but one of the things I wanted to also share that came up is that, so one, one really helpful tip for me was because, um, and this comes from the world of internal family systems, which is a specific type of therapy. Um, I, I meaning that's, that's what it's represented in, what I'm about to say. But it's, it's really, when I was saying earlier that this part of us, this coping strategy was really protective like it's, it's, I found that that's one of the most powerful tools to see it really did a beautiful thing for that child. It perhaps even for certain children allowed them to survive. Mm. An example I will often give people is say someone who uses heroin, right? One of the most, most judged things in our current society is that for some people, and I've shared this with some clients that are, are former heroin addicts and they actually agree with me. I'm like, it could have been that if you didn't find heroin, you, you could, you may have killed yourself because you, you, you like maybe had no other outs and they're like, absolutely. But because society judges them so badly, when the cravings or thoughts come, they feel bad about themselves. So if we're able to connect that, that voice that is wanting to take us down that, uh, that old path is coming actually from a very loving place that usually helps ease it, right? Because, and, and the thing to do more in the moment is to actually say, ah, I hear you, I see what you're trying to do, you're trying to protect me. Thank you, but right now I don't need you. 
I have these other ways, but, but by in a way thinking it and seeing it for what it really did as a kid, mm -hmm. it like, it, it, it kind of like steps back and it's not fighting so hard, right? Because if that part thinks it's actually trying to save that child and we tell it, God, you're so annoying. I wish you would go away. You're ruining my life. It's going to grab onto that kid even more. It's going to be like, I'm not leaving this child alone. Yeah. So that to me has been a powerful tool for myself and for my clients to see. I've literally never found a single coping strategy where I can't walk back and say that was incredibly powerfully helpful to that child. And so yeah. usually helping people realize that, um, yeah, it brings a lot of gentleness for them. No, I think that's amazing. And that's a, a lot of the time when I think about, like, I've, I've said this a few times and I think I get a few like eyebrow raises whenever I do say this, but like, I am so grateful for every aspect of my eating disorder. I almost yeah. think I, I yeah. wrote about it the other day and it was, um, I really see it now as an ex, I physically, and I excavated my emotional being. There are parts of myself that it's like an archaeological dig. Like, and it's a shame that I had to like physically remove so much of my body to get there because I was, it was life threatening. Um, and I wish that I had been able to get there without doing that to my physical body. But it was like an excavation. I fully revealed so much of where I was deeply wounded and hurting. Like that moment at that dinner table, whether I had had a eating disorder, been anorexic later on, bulimic, whatever, or not, that level of judgment and pain and yeah. humiliation would have come up in some other way. And I'm so grateful yeah. that I went through something and that I continue to go through something that causes me or that gives me the opportunity to to notice moments like that in my childhood and recognize their significance because yeah. i think a lot of people go through their lives <clears throat> with this underlying or very on the surface pain and they're never able to pinpoint where that might have come from mm -hmm. um and i really credit yeah every difficult thing that i have been through like with my eating disorder to that and i i'm so grateful for every part of it um yeah yeah, I think that's beautiful. And I, you know, it, it, it's interesting that you bring up this, like, you know, sometimes that may upset people or judge people, because I do think that that's, um, it's, it's, you know, and the reason I brought up, you know, this, this piece about that, you know, again, a, academic accomplishment, financial accomplishment, um, social status accomplishment, are other forms of coping can be okay. I, I don't think there's anything that is definitely coping or not meaning you know, but, but, but usually, I mean, not even usually, I would say I only know two or maybe three people that are probably almost coping strategy free. They all happen to be teachers of mine and they are all 70 or older. So I mean, I, I, again, I still struggle with this stuff. Mm -hmm. So the thing is like, for me, it's important to ask for people to ask themselves, not am I coping? But it's more of how am I coping? Right. And the reason I, the specific reason I bring up these issues, like, again, working with celebrities and, and, and some very wealthy people is because there are certain societal level things right now that are keeping some people from giving themselves permission to say that they are struggling. You know what I mean? There's this whole, like, literally some people are like, what am I, what, I won't, 
don't want to give much detail, but this guy grew up in a very, very wealthy family. He's one of the wealthiest people in the world. And he came to me and he's like, no, he's like, but I, but I'm like, I, he's like, I have all this white privilege and not like literally I've had like three arguments over people over the last few months. I'm like, like that is like, I, the, the, there's a quote that comes up that, uh, that, that says nobody has the monopoly on suffering yeah. because it's like, they're literally like, well, look, I have all this stuff. I, I can't be complaining. And I'm like, yes, you can. You, you had a certain type of privilege. Yeah. You had material privilege but you didn't have emotional privilege. Like, yeah. right? like, like you were sent off to boarding school. You, you did not even have the warmth and touch of your parents. And so it's like, I wanna bring that up just for anyone that's listening. Cause I feel like, like it's again, it's not if we're coping, it's how, and everyone yeah. should feel permission to, to, to explore and not feel yeah, this, this guilt. And, and Oh yeah, there have been so many, I mean, obviously I'm like a, privileged white girl with a mental health podcast who like had an eating disorder <laughs> it's like right you and every other white girl that went to private school in LA had an eating disorder <laughs> like I've gone through so much of that but then it's like it's all like I cannot discount anything that I've experienced just because I put myself I compare myself with like a million other people like that's yeah. not where is that going to get me yeah. um but yeah in terms of coping it's funny um when you talk about like the little coping mechanisms, I've been, I've been in this moment and I think so many of my peers are doing the same thing, especially like our, my age people comparing myself to other yeah. people on the internet has recently been a huge thing for me. It's insane. I see anyone in their twenties with like, there can be people that are like, I can see a similar, like, or not even similar, like a, another young person, like getting a on like a very successful TV show. Like there was like a Euphoria <laughs> actress that I saw the other night, the like popular show Euphoria on HBO. Yeah. There's this actress. I'm not trying to be an actress in any world. It's not, <laughs> but I saw her and I was like, fuck man, like she's doing that. I'm here. So I did this thing and I'm, I swear I'm going to write a thing on this because it's a huge thing that a lot of people do. I call it the, the birthday vector. So hmm. I do this thing where this happened with the Euphoria actress. It's happened with podcasters, with so yeah. many different types of people. If I am triggered by someone because they're kind of like me, maybe, but I'm intimidated by their success, I will immediately Google their birthday. And if they're a, even a week older, I'm like, oh, thank God. Like, <laughs> I have this amount of time to catch up. But it's like, that is like a perfect micro coping mechanism. Yeah. The little like me comparing the birthday, huge yeah. comparison I, I love, coping mechanism. Yeah. No, I, I love that you're bringing this up because I, um, I think there's these major coping strategies that especially you going into to be a healer, it's really, it's really beautiful to see. It's interesting, right? Because actually, you know, I've, I've made comments and I don't, I don't tell people things that, that are not true. I just, this, this one, one thing I believe in is not lying. <laughs> so I've, I've said to you, like, how, how, like you're, 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 you're especially reflective. Like, it's, it's really, it's, it's, it's notable. And so, like, it's interesting because I'm actually seeing the opposite of what you're, you're saying. And, and it's, it's funny that you're bringing up the age thing. Actually, I'll say something about that in a second because, like, I think there are our major coping strategies. And I think most people have about two or three that they learned in childhood. Mm -hmm. And then once you start clearing those, then it becomes more nuanced. And I, I've called them like micro alignments or major, yeah. you know, like I think like major misalignments tend to be like types of people that we date if we date unhealthy or again, if we 
spend most of our time and energy in a job we don't like. And then a lot of people I work with, like we clear that. And then all of a sudden it's like these little things and it's like, it, it becomes more and more nuanced. And I, I haven't found again, other than a couple of people where I feel like they don't struggle with that, but yeah, it's, but the more we clear of those things, it's just, it, it's really beautiful. Cause it just, this, the life experience only keeps expanding. Um, yeah, but the comparison thing is it's a, it's a tough one. And it's funny because like one of my teachers, her name is Marcella. She's like one of the first of the first four MAPS therapists. One of my teachers, 80 years old, like one of the most skilled healers, top three healers I know. But I was talking to her about this whole thing about the psychedelics and all the things in the media. And I, cause I was like, Marcella, I'm like, I, have I done enough? Like, um, like I'm not do. I don't feel like I'm doing anything right now. I just talk on people's podcasts, and I haven't <laughs> written a book yet. And she's like, it helped because she was like, yeah, that's come up for her too. And I'm like, she's she's a. And so it's like there is this piece about comparison that is just it's very universal, right? But I actually kind of it's interesting because like I feel like comparison can be an in on actually getting to the root of what it is that that childhood or usually childhood trigger is right and the reason i mentioned age it's funny because i've noticed last time you 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 mentioned a couple of times you're like i'm only 25 i'm only 25 (laughs) um and then you mentioned this thing and i was like because i was actually thinking afterwards i was like what about the opposite i'm like what a blessing because like you haven't like there's less garbage i feel like then you know i felt like i started my healing journey at like 34 or 35 so i'm like what a gift to be able to like, <laughs> you know, maybe there's like less garbage for you to have to like take off, you know what I mean? And maybe you're comparing yourself likely to people who are actually embodying their coping strategy still, you know what I mean? So. Yeah, totally. No, it's fine. I was thinking about that too, because I just, I just released the first episode of the podcast and I listened back to it. And I mentioned a few times in the very beginning, like <laughs> my short adult life, I'm only, and it's like, what is this obsession I have with being yeah. young? Like, am I freaked out that I haven't done? That's what it is. I think I'm so, um, I'm self-conscious about the fact that I like, quote unquote, haven't done enough to yeah. me, whatever the hell that means. So yeah. I, again, using, I self-soothe by reassuring myself, like, it's okay. Like, you don't have to have done this amount. You're only this age. Like, yeah. And that's why I Google people's birthday because <laughs> in some way it'll make, it'll, it reassures me and it's soothing to see like, oh, it's okay. It's okay. You haven't accomplished this because they did it 10 years later. So you have right. that, that much time. Yeah. I well, think, I mean, I think the most important, yeah, the beautiful part is that you're noticing it, you know, cause I think yeah. that that is the key, you know, like the, the thing is normally things are happening unconsciously. We're not aware of them, the patterns. And then there's this whole stepwise to it. And then we have to become conscious of it, right? Yeah. And because how are we going to change it if we're not aware? And then I actually think there is this middle period between being unaware and becoming more aware and still doing the coping that's actually more painful than before, you know, because oh, yeah. now we're doing it and we're aware. Oh, yeah. But th- it's almost like that pain is a gift because that then provides us the opportunity to actually then eject that in the direction where it's meant to come out. And then I see the, the, the coping strategies go down, you know, and I've seen that now enough with myself and other people to where I trust it and honor it as like, Hey, that's just, it really is a part of the process. So. Oh yeah. There are, I mean, like when I first discovered, when I first like started engaging in bulimic behavior, when I was a senior in high school, I didn't really know what was going on. 
Like I yeah. saw it, I think on like TV, some like stupid teenage show. There was like a suggestion <laughs> of it happening. And I was like, oh, this might be it. It was much easier to eat and then purge then, than like there have been moments in the last like year that I've had like quote unquote relapse moments where it's happened to me or I've done it. And it's so much more painful because I understand so much of what is going on on a very deep level. And like the actual, the act of it happening is like the very tippity top of the iceberg of why it's actually happening. And me having more awareness of all the rest of the iceberg is like, makes it a hundred times more painful than if it just like happened. Um, But maybe hopefully then just knowing that that's part of the, again, then, then, to get through that. It's just, it's just part of the process. Well, yeah. Well, that's also what saved me from, it's what's made it possible for me to like 99 times out of a hundred be like almost there where I want to do it. And then <laughs> be able to sit in that feeling and go like, let's just assess why yeah. you're having this urge. And yeah. then sitting for like, even like 30 seconds, just thinking about it and engaging with that knowing mm. is what mm. allows me to then step in the other direction and like thank god beautiful 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 yeah and you're right and what you're describing is the thing that we weren't capable of doing as a child right because our our brains just weren't able to 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 do that and so that's the opening up of the pathway for that river um yeah the new rivers right to to let out these things in in ways that are they're meant to come out um one of the things i didn't want to forget to say is that you know again because there's all this excitement about psychedelics is that, you know, I want, you know, I think people are now getting a good sense in, in, in you know, in our conversation that, that what we're talking about, right, this, this being seen, the catharsis, having a witness to the catharsis, there's no psychedelic that's required in that equation, you know, because mm-hmm. I think right now there's a frustrating time again where people don't have access either to the psychedelics themselves or they, it, it feels unaffordable or something. But the reality is, if you think about it, it's like th- this connection. And when you were describing this, this event with your partner, where like, again, this part of you just seemed to come out. It's like yeah. something in that relationship allowed you, that part of you to feel safe enough to say, boom, this is what I feel. And it was received. Mm-hmm. That is the magic. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and I'll actually add that. And I've seen this because people come to me, like people email me, and this is not what's on Instagram, is that a lot of people are now going to like healers, because I guarantee you 97% of the like, the psychedelic healers out there, whether they're trained or not, wouldn't, don't know the, the stuff to the level that we discussed today. Like, I just know that because I know the field very well. Mm. So if you take something like a psychedelic, and this comes up, and the person the, 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 the therapist doesn't know how to receive it, it can be re-traumatizing because it, then it's like, oh, it came up and it wasn't held. And that's like a lot of the emails I get is like, I saw so-and-so, I went to an ayahuasca retreat and I actually feel worse now. Yeah. So it's, it's, I wanted to just emphasize that really it's about, yeah, the allowance of this to come up in a safe place that that is the crucial magic not anything to do with the actual psychedelics yeah people have this like romantic idea of what it's supposed to be and they think it's like if they're like a woke wellness seeking evolved quote-unquote person in this world that they have to like run to the nearest like iboga weekend and it's like no Yeah. yeah 
Well, this has been just, yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly how I feel. It's been, um, it's been amazing and it's a, a privilege. I can't wait to, to share this amazing two-part like, odyssey we've been on. Um, it's been wonderful and unexpected and I, I just so appreciate your time. So thank you so much and have a, a beautiful evening. We've gone from light to dark. It's all of a sudden like this pitch black room. 